Welcome to Humanly, the podcast providing allied health and integrative medicine practitioners with the most up-to-date, evidence-based and clinically relevant information. This podcast is a melting pot of ideas on health and well-being and does not replace the advice of your primary healthcare professional. Here's your host, Daniel Reuters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Humanly podcast. My name is Daniel Reuters, and today I'm joined by Professor Gerald Pollock. Professor Pollock, thank you for being here. It's uh, so wonderful to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you. I'm delighted, delighted to be with you, Daniel. I'm very happy. Professor Pollock, you have been researching structured water for over 20 years, and you're currently a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle. Can you start off by explaining just exactly what structured water is and what actually got you interested in uh, studying structured water? Sure. Uh, happy to do that. Well, uh, the term structured uh, water, it's an old old term. We, we really don't use it uh, so much these days, but the idea, is, because everything has structure, so it's slightly ambiguous, but I think the, the intent originally uh, was to distinguish a kind of water from ordinary water that's in a glass. See, ordinary liquid water, the current understanding, which, by the way, is incomplete about liquid water, is that liquid water consists of um, uh, individual molecules that are randomly disposed relative to one another, and they're bouncing around at a fierce number of times per second, uh, perhaps per femtosecond. And, uh, and that, that's the current concept of, of, of liquid water. So structured water actually has structure to it. It's not The molecules are not bouncing around that way. They're not randomly oriented. They're actually uh, ordered in, in, in some way. And the way they're ordered um, has not been uh, so clear. Uh, some ideas have come into being, and we've extended those ideas or modified those ideas. And I, you know, I will tell you about that if you ask me in, in a bit. But um, that's the difference between between so-called structured water, which in which the molecules are. Uh, 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 you might say uh, some people have advocated the idea that the molecules are kind of like standing at attention, uh, like soldiers standing at attention, organized in some way. Unlike liquid water, where they're at ease, moving around, um, and uh, um, yeah, so that that's essentially the difference. And the way I, the reason I got interested um, is, uh, you might say, is a quirk. Of, of some sort, um, I, I we have been studying the mechanism of muscle contraction, and um, um, and the mechanism the mechanism uh, that's in the textbooks uh, today is not so different from what's in was in the textbooks uh, thirty or forty years ago, and there there's a a problem that we were working on, and the problem is that unfortunately that that the evidence doesn't fit the theory or theory doesn't fit the evidence. And we spent quite a few years uh, doing experiments. Some of them, I think, fairly sophisticated. We got known for our advanced apparatus that could measure measure phenomena that 
other people uh, couldn't measure, and almost nothing fit the predictions of the theory. It was a it was a bit of a problem for us because our if you if you want to put it in a certain way, our competitor, if you will, um, it was a famous um, uh, scientist, uh, Sir Andrew Huxley, who won a Nobel Prize. His Nobel Prize was given for his work on uh, currents and membranes. And then he liked microscopes and he liked fiddling around with muscles. So he got into that field. And um, and he he is the, the person who, who set out uh, the theory. I wrote a book on muscle contraction in 1990, and I laid out the reasons why why uh, it's called muscles and molecules, the reasons why the theory didn't work and what might actually work better. And I still think um, that there's a measure of truth to, um, to what I put forth. Um, but somehow we, we knew that, that water... Um, was centrally involved. Now, water plays no role whatsoever in the current understanding of muscle contraction. It's the proteins, uh, myosin and actin, that somehow interact with one another. But the odd thing that we came to realize is that the muscle is mostly water. It's not mostly proteins. If you if you think of the volume of a muscle, like the rest of the body, pretty much, it's roughly two-thirds water. And that two-thirds is two-thirds by volume, right? Um, if you were to, and, and because the water molecules are so small, in order to feel that two-thirds volume, you've got to pack in a lot of water molecules. And if you do the count, if you, if you, could, if you could take all the molecules that are uh, sitting inside a, a muscle and line them up one by one and start counting, um, more than 99 out of 100 would be water molecules because the proteins are very large. The water molecules are small, so you need many of them. Um, and we knew we knew that water had somehow to be involved. And then um, the, the, the um, invitation came, invitation to, to present at a conference. And this conference was held in Hungary, and it was, it was to commemorate the work of a famous biophysicist, Hungarian biophysicist who passed, uh, had passed recently. And he had two interests. And one interest was muscle and the other interest was water. So I was invited to represent the muscle contingent, although the water was interesting for me as well. And I presented um, our, our work on muscle. And I think, if I recall, it was reasonably well-received. But what intrigued me there was, was the present were the presentations on water because uh, the, the, the most prominent person who was there was a guy named Gilbert Ling. And I had known of Gilbert Ling because I was a stu- graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania, and he was in Philadelphia at the same time. I even saw him once at a conference, and someone, someone pointed out to me, hey, you know, the guy sitting two tables away, he's that crazy guy, Gilbert Ling, who has an idea that inside the cell, the water is not like liquid water. All the molecules are lined up um, in some way. So he used the term structured. So I sat and I listened to Gilbert, and I also listened to perhaps a dozen other people who had come uh, and who had evidence to support this point of view by Gilbert Ling. And and uh, of course, I made friends with all of those people, and I was seriously impressed. 
And I came home excited. I came home from Hungary uh, uh, wanting to share this this new understanding or new information with the students and postdocs in my laboratory. And I gave them one of Gilbert's books. By that time, he'd written four or five. And of course, it was extremely controversial, no doubt about it. Um, And every one of them came back to me and said, you know, this is really interesting stuff. And if, if this guy is right, it changes all of biology. I mean, completely. And and so um, that reinforced the notion that this was something revolutionary, but uh, revolutionary in a positive sense. That um, he, that Gilbert, Gilbert um, has his uh, um, finger on on truth or close to it. And so, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm easily distracted from what we had been doing, and I I quickly saw that that this has relevance not only for muscles, which we were working on but for all of biology and maybe even beyond. So first thing I did was um, I, I decided I'm going to write a book. Now, Gilbert had already, already written a whole series of books on the subject. And um, I, I should point out, by the way, that Gilbert was chosen among all students in China. There were three who came um, after World War II to study in the U.S., there was a, a chemist, a physicist, and a biologist, and Gilbert was chosen as the biologist. So this was a highly select group of people, um, you know, not the, the ordinary run of the mill. These were the top people in, in China and uh, invited to the U.S. And they all thought Gilbert was the smartest of the three, or so the rumors were. And one of the guys... His name is Yang. He went on to win a Nobel Prize in physics, became famous. Uh, I think he became famous um, uh, not only because of his Nobel Prize, but as the story goes, he he married his translator and he was something like 90 years old and she was 30 or something. So that got a lot of notoriety. But anyway, I just wanted to digress for a moment to tell you that that, uh, uh, Gilbert, who passed uh, less than a year ago, almost reaching 100, was a really special guy. Um, not necessarily the easiest to deal with, but um, but brilliant, totally brilliant, and certainly should have won a Nobel Prize. So I, one of the problems, though, with Gilbert Ling is that his writing is not not the best, not so clear. I, I can imagine Gilbert sitting, although I'm not sure, sitting at his typewriter or word processor um, and batting it out and sending it to his publisher, you see. And... Um, it doesn't work usually when you when you do that. The number of revisions. Um, I, I was just reviewing uh, a book proposal by someone who's writing about <coughs> about science, and he talks about that in his particular field. It's not unusual to rewrite something fifty times. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I couldn't believe what he was saying, but it's not surprising because one of my students, uh, we're working on a paper, and I I think we're about version number thirty right right now, and it's driving me nuts, but uh, we're 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 getting there. So anyway, uh, um, <coughs> excuse me, I his 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 works. I wouldn't say are impenetrable because you can penetrate, but it sure takes a lot of work to get through and understand. And if you're a physical chemist, you have a better chance of of grasping some details. And if you're not, 
then it's not so easy. So I decided to write a book um, describing Gilbert Ling's work. And um, it's still on Amazon, actually, surprisingly, selling well. And that was my 2001 book, not the latest book, 2001 called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. And I described how um, the Gilbert's ideas, Gilbert Ling's ideas, on structured water inside the cell. But I went on, this was maybe a mistake because Gilbert didn't appreciate this so much. I went on um, a step further to describe how this idea of structured water um, was critically important for every cell in the body, not just muscles, but nerve cells, secretory cells, what have you. And and the, the central point in, in that book was to adduce evidence to demonstrate uh, that uh, the conversion, the transition, uh, we say phase transition, transition between between structured water and ordinary liquid water is a trigger for uh, so many cellular events. Uh, for example, in muscle contraction, the relaxed muscle contains this kind of structured or ordered water. But uh, when the muscle is ready to contract, what happens is that there's a phase transition that the water undergoes this transition from the structured water, uh, which I'll tell you more about, um, to uh, uh, ordinary water. And then that enables the proteins to undergo uh, conformational changes or folding, if you will, to, to, uh, to manifest the, the contraction. And then when the contraction is over, the water and the proteins return to their initial state um, and uh, uh, back again to the to the so-called resting state or relaxed state. And the same thing same thing is true in other kinds of cells like nerve cells transmitting transmitting information. Um, um, uh, there's a transition in the water inside the nerve cell which allows the proteins to undergo a conformational change, and the information is then transmitted along the nerve cell. And the same with secretory cells. Um, uh, phase transition, water changes, structure changes, and the products are ejected from the secretory cells in something like an explosion. Um, so, so, so that was... That was my entree in, into the field. And um, the last uh, step in the story is that, of course, having written this book, and, um, and the, book was, the book was received with uh, mixed, uh, mixed re- reviews. Um, you can, anybody can read on Amazon. Um, some people said, uh, some reviewers said, this is pure nonsense. It's just an extension of Gilbert Ling. And everybody knows that Gilbert Ling is a crazy guy or something like that. So it's just uh, a nonsense. And uh, I remember another view saying, oh, yeah, Pollock, I, I know this guy. He always complains that the establishment is is causing him grief. And I think at that stage in my life, I was never complaining about that. And another guy from Harvard, uh, head of a big, big group, writes, um, this was a real pleasure. I should have hung it up on the wall. He says, this is a 304-page preface to the future of cell biology. Of course, I like that. So um, anyway, we decided that we have to start doing experiments uh, to get into this. And 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 within six months or, or so after publication of that book, uh, I 
came into contact with a Japanese uh, guy I never met before, and he told me something that was a really critical clue as to how to find a, a preparation um, that we could use to study. And and we started, and that's how that's how it it all began. So instead of going on and on and on, I'll I'll, I'll stop because I'll wait for you to um, to ask questions. That was fascinating. Thank you for sharing that, uh, oh, that brief history. Um, for our listeners who've never been exposed to this topic before, they may not know that there actually is a fourth structure of water or fourth phase of water. So are you able to explain a little bit more about what those four phases of water are and why structured water or easy water, I think some people call it, uh, why it's so important than the or more important than the other three phases? Uh, sure. Um, uh, well, I'm not sure about more important, but but this is this is more than just a laboratory curiosity. It's actually this fourth phase, which I'll tell you about, is what fills our body, fills our cells, and um, and as I mentioned before, there's a lot of it. And so, if you if you really want to um, deduce the working mechanisms inside the body, um, you obviously need to know what's inside the cells. And, um, and this fourth phase is essentially what fills, what fills the cells. So what's the fourth phase? Well, so the three phases that we learn about are solid, liquid, and vapor. And I, I think I don't have to explain what they are. They're, you know, the solid is ice and the liquid water we drink. And the vapor is what arises to uh, to form uh, clouds, and there there had been talk about a, a different kind of water, a different phase of water for more than a hundred years. Um, and the reason the reason for one 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 reason for this is is um, that if you if you start with with the or if you presume that water has only these three phases. It's really difficult to explain so many phenomena. Um, at the time of the turn of the beginning of the 20th century, there were a, there was a substantial number of these. And by now, if you look on the web um, and um, um, try to, uh, uh, there's a website that contains there are something like 60 or 65 anomalies of water, and this is based on the idea that of something that doesn't fit. The concept of three phases. So the idea is that well, perhaps there's a fourth phase of water, and um, and people have talked about this, and even even I mentioned Gilbert Ling uh, a, a moment ago, but even Albert Saint Georgi, who is often considered to be the father of modern biochemistry, he was talking about uh, he didn't say a fourth phase, but um, essentially he was talking about structured or ordered. Water, which is essentially the same, and and one of the one of the many famous quotes from Saint Georgie, who by the way discovered vitamin C and studied muscles and water and many things, he said, "Life, life is water dancing to the tune of solids." Uh, it's one of those you know ones you you, you don't forget. So, to, so there there has been um, there has been a lot of uh, uh, thinking along these lines, although the kind of thinking has been radical, considered radical thinking, because it's simpler to think about the cell as bounded by a membrane and 
and stuffed with ordinary liquid water. However, anybody can demonstrate that that's not correct. And the simplest way is to cut yourself. And if you cut yourself, if your cells are filled with liquid water, all that water would pour out and you'd lose lose your water, uh, you see. But that doesn't happen. The water is more in, inside the cell, is more gel-like. And, and that's what this kind of ordered or structured water water is. So, so let me go, let me go a step more and explain to you what we found and um, why that's somewhat different from what Gilbert Ling um, had been espousing uh, and, and, and why it's important. Okay. So, so what we found, this doesn't have to be inside the cell. It could be anywhere um, is wherever you have water. We found that when the water, um, when the water uh, um, falls adjacent to some material, if that material is hydrophilic or water-loving, uh, not every water-loving surface, not every hydrophilic, but, but many, if not most of them, um, the water undergoes a, a, a change. So you start with ordinary water molecules, and those water molecules that are uh, uh, impacting this material surface undergo a, a radical transition. They go from individual water molecules to a sheet. Um, and the sheet is a hexagonal or honeycomb sheet that sticks on to the surface. And then uh, another layer forms um, subsequent to the first layer, and then a third layer, and so on. And these layers keep building. Uh, and they can build out um, to under the right conditions. We've seen them building out to up to like a million layers or something like this. This is a very impressive uh, kind of buildup. It's not trivial by any means. Inside the cell, the buildup is obviously uh, not not that much because the space between solids inside the cell is only maybe uh, on, on average uh, a distance equivalent to like seven water molecules lined up. Um, so there's not much space. So uh, so th- this this kind of water, we the reason um, we call it fourth phase, but we also call it um, exclusion zone. Um, and in fact, it was a guy from Brisbane, um, <laughs> a friend of mine who suggested that name, um, <laughs> odd, odd coincidence. He said, uh, you got to give it a name because, you know, you're seeing this all the time and nobody else has seen it. Uh, parenthetically wrong. It was actually observed 30 years before we observed it uh, by a group of physiologists looking at the cornea of the eye. Um, so, so we called it exclusion zone because this kind of water is like a crystal. It's organized and crystals exclude solute, solids. So for example, <coughs> when ice is forming, um, the, the forming ice excludes the, the solutes. Otherwise, you wouldn't get a pure crystal. And ice is generally a pure crystal. So you can see, for example, a glacial moraine ahead of the glacier of, of, of ice. Um, and, and so because this water we found experimentally excludes, uh, first we found it excludes particles, then various uh, molecules and such. It's a practically universal excluder. So um, John... Watterson was the, was the guy from Brisbane, physical chemist, uh, and um, he said, you know, you should call it exclusion zone because it excludes. And then the water that's inside that zone is exclusion zone water. And he said it has a, 
uh, a real advantage, um, and the advantage is that it's exclusion zone EZ. It's easy to remember, but that works in the U.S. I, I'm not sure about Australia, but in most places it's EZ, not EZ. So it doesn't EZ. work. Yeah, it doesn't work quite as well. Anyway, the name stuck, and I, in a way, it's an unfortunate name because it just reflects one of many, many properties of this kind of water, the fact that it excludes. So um, one more thing that I, I need to mention because it's critically important is that this water is not neutral anymore. Um, it's actually typically negatively charged. And, um, and so as, this, as these sheets build, uh, they build a zone of negative, negative charge. And beyond the region where they've built up is ordinary water. And that ordinary water is filled with the complementary positive charge. And the reason for that is all of this is built from water molecules. And the idea is that the water molecules are then broken into um, two components, uh, H plus and OH minus. And it's those OH minuses that uh, gather together to form this exclusion zone or fourth phase, while the positive component, the protons, are sitting outside in the ordinary water. So you have a battery, uh, essentially, where where the exclusion zone is negatively charged and the region beyond is positively charged. Um, and we've demonstrated that you can actually get electricity from, from this battery, um, one of the interesting uh, developments. So finally, uh, a question is, um, well, finally, in, in what I'm describing, in order to, um, to build this ordered zone, you're going from disorder, from chaos to order. In order to do that, you have to supply energy. You're also charging battery at the same time. In order to do that, you need energy. You know, your smartphone won't work tomorrow if you don't plug it in tonight. So you need energy for both of those uh, phenomena, both of those aspects. And, and I tell you, we couldn't figure out where that energy was coming from. We spent several years of head scratching. And finally, it was an undergraduate, a young undergraduate student, um, who um, who led us to the, the the right answer? And he was he was doing something that he wasn't supposed to do, which is great. We encourage that. Um, <laughs> sort of, it's sort of like living in Australia. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, we encourage. So so he was studying the exclusion zone in a little experimental chamber, and sitting next to him was a lamp, a gooseneck lamp, and he decided to shine the lamp on onto the uh, uh, preparation. And um, and then he called me to take a look, and what I could see was that the where he where the light was incident on the chamber, the exclusion zone was hugely expanded. So uh, I thought, wow, this is pretty interesting. It looks like light photons are really the source of energy for for all this. Um, and uh, and we went on to do, of course, real experiments, um, and we tried to find out which wavelengths of light were important. Um, in building the, the, this uh, fourth phase of water. And we found that it was not the visible wavelengths, you know, starting from um, violet all the way to longer wavelengths of red. It was beyond red. It was uh, infrared. Infrared wavelengths were powerfully effective in building this. We could, we could take an LED, a light-emitting diode, um, very, very weak, barely, barely, uh, barely see the light, 
um, and shine it on, on, on the chamber. And over a period of an hour, it would increase by 10 times. Uh, so it's, it's really powerful. And you take it away and it recedes back to the original. So it's very powerful. So uh, to summarize, uh, because I've gone through a lot of stuff, uh, the evidence that we have is that this fourth phase consists of sheets, hexagonal sheets that build on one another. They have negative charge, and the region beyond has positive charge, making a battery. And all of this is built by uh, mostly infrared light that's incident on, um, on the preparation. And, uh, and finally, this is, this is what fills our cells. Um, you know? Okay, so let me stop there and uh, let you say, put in a few words edgewise. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing what you found there. And I've, I've got lots of questions now swimming around in my mind. So you're saying that this exclusion zone water, uh, the way you're describing it, I was immediately thinking that it's possibly taking the place of the sodium potassium pump of cells, or am I thinking of two completely different ways in which things move in and out of cells now? Uh, well, your your question is is actually a little bit complicated, um, although the answer is maybe simple. <laughs> uh, so let me address the sodium potassium pump, um, and let me preface it by saying um, that I believe there is no such pump. Uh, and it's not my original idea. This is an idea coming from Gilbert Ling. So, um, and, and what he found is, you know, if you have a pump in the membrane, you need energy to power the pump, like any pump always needs energy. And so Gilbert doubted, uh, this for various, that the existence of this pump for various reasons. And he did a critical experiment, which has never been questioned by anybody. Um, people, essentially don't refer to it, but the experiment is pretty clear. He poisoned the cell with a cocktail of poisons uh, so that the cell was really poisoned. And then he looked. So in doing that, he said, well, if I poison the cell, I'm, I'm depleting the cell of the energy that's required to power the pump. Um, and, and so all of the effects of pumping should, should vanish, but they didn't. Um, and um, he did some computations, uh, and the computations show that for the sodium pump, uh, in the most generous of presumptions, uh, generous to the uh, opponents, um, uh, the cell would need something like uh, 30 times the amount of energy that um, um, uh, that could could be uh, uh, supplied in, in in this condition. So. So it clearly couldn't work unless unless there was something wrong with this experiment. And I said, nobody has, has challenged it. Well, since the advent of the so-called sodium pump or sodium-potassium exchanger, um, um, there have been discovered, I think, something like 2,000 additional pumps. I may have that number wrong. It may be 1,500. I asked a student of mine who went into that field, um, and he listed the number, and it was something like that. Um, huge number, they all require energy. And so if the cell is, uh, the computation was that the cell was using, the, the cell that was not poisoned was using something like one third of its energy to pump, to power the sodium uh, pump. Now you've got 2000 pumps and where's the energy going to come from? Um, the cell doesn't have enough energy 
to do anything or even even to power those pumps. So um, Gilbert argued that uh, the, the, this is wrong, and I, I agree with his point of view. So he's challenged the establishment, and um, it's also difficult to find them. You look at electron micrographs uh, of the cell and the cell boundary, the cell membrane, and you ought to be able to see those proteins because you can't see other proteins, but yet um, the membrane in, in, in the images is, looks like a railroad track. Um, you know, with two rails, or actually three three rails, and it's it's, it's not um, interrupted by by these structures. And also, a final argument, maybe it's not the final one, but Gilbert argues uh, there's no real estate. Um, you know, there's so many pumps, and there's no place in the membrane to put all those pumps. And um, and also, <laughs> just just one more. Apparently, the conclusion that's been reached is that even even the chemicals, uh, the drugs that are produced by um, by the pharmaceutical companies, which the cell has never seen before, the conclusion is that there are pumps for those too. And how on earth the cell could, um, you know, muster a pump for a chemical that it's never seen before is a is a is a challenge. So there are many reasons why the the pumping is is. Um, doesn't really occur. And so your, the second part of your question is, well, what about EZ or fourth phase water? And yeah, uh, um, you're, you're right on. Um, and, and so the, the, the um, sodium, sodium potassium exchanger is said to be responsible for the negative charge of the inside of the cell. So you take a pair of electrodes, you stick one micro electrode, uh, parenthesis, um, originated by Gilbert Ling, same guy, should have won a Nobel Prize um, because it's become widely into use. So one microelectrode is inside the cell, another one's outside the cell. And you can measure a potential difference. Uh, typically, it will be somewhere between 50 and 100 millivolts negative inside the cell. So why is it negative inside the cell? Well, the textbook explanation, which has to do with sodium-potassium uh, exchange, is that um, uh, the cell is is exchanging ions in such a way that uh, that more negative ones uh, remain inside inside the cell um, than than positive ones, and you wind up with a negative electrical potential inside the cell. But uh, that's difficult to to square with evidence. The uh, first is if if uh, if the system of pumps is not working, then, you know, <laughs> there's, there's something that is not right. And the second is if you cut off part of the cell, um, in other words, break the membrane, break the cell, you still uh, can have the effects that you would ordinarily attribute to the membrane pump, even though you've opened the cell to the outside. So the cell should have zero electrical potential, but it doesn't. It maintains its electrical potential for a long time. So what's going on? Well, I think what's going on is really simple. Uh, it's not complicated like the pumps. It, it, what, it, what it is is that the water inside the cell is easy water, which has negative charge. So, of course, if you were to stick an electrode inside the cell, you'd measure a negative electrical potential, period. Uh, I think that's I think that's the correct explanation for um, um, for what's going on, um, and um, I, I discussed this a little bit more in in my um, 
uh, later book, um, uh, Cells, Gels, and uh, sorry, uh, the fourth phase of of water, which has become really popular. I, <laughs> I I feel so gratified, but there's more discussion of that in in that book, along with so many other things. So I think I should stop there with that question because otherwise I could go on forever. It it just makes so much sense the way you're explaining it. Um, it it really does. It just resonates with me um, what you're saying. And well, thank you. <laughs> it it really it, it's shaking my foundations of my understanding of human biology and and how I've been taught that cells work. Uh, so that's amazing. I love being challenged. I love having these amazing new thoughts being presented. Well, thank you um, very much. I really appreciate your comment, Daniel. <laughs> oh, um, no, I, I thank you for providing the information. It's, it's wonderful. Um, so this brings me then to my next question. If we're getting energy from light or photons of light to power the cells, what's a mitochondria for? Uh, obviously, our understanding of that is not correct either. Well, um, you see, um, it, it uh, not exactly. I, I think that's that's uh, accurate. I myself have not studied mitochondria in great detail, but I can say a few things about uh, about the mitochondria. Um, see, uh, if you look at the structure of a mitochondrion, it's full of membranes, internal membranes, and those membranes are interfacing with water. And, and so I can easily imagine that the water inside the mitochondrion is easy water uh, because the situation is exactly right. Now, easy water is full of negative charge. Uh, and so if this negative charge is then supplied to the cell, uh, we have evidence that negative charge builds easy water. So you stick an electrode um, in a, a bath of water, and if you... Um, if you pass current through, the negative electrode builds easy water right around it. The, the charge pours into the water and you get a buildup of, uh, of easy water. Now, the cell, of course, um, the cell needs the uh, easy water. It needs a full complement of this water to function uh, properly. So it might be that uh, the mitochondrion is a, is a factory that produces negative charge the negative charge leaks out into the rest of the cell, and that negative charge builds easy water. So the mitochondria are there to ensure that the easy water is there. And remember, this water has energy, potential energy, because the cell is filled with this uh, negative charge, and all those negative charges want to get as far away from one another as possible. They repel, right? And that's energy, that's potential energy that could then get delivered. So... I, uh, I do think uh, it, uh, that the, the understanding of energy inside the cell is not exactly as, as the textbooks have it. And um, the evidence we have is that electrical energy in this form that I just mentioned to you is critically important for driving biological processes. Whether that's the main source of energy, I'm not so sure, but uh, I don't know. Nobody knows, but it's certainly one one component of of the energy so um yeah so this is i i think um maybe r really uh really significant um the the yeah so uh, the the energy provided by the mitochondria could be electrical in nature 
So with easy water, is this a, a substance that we can obviously produce endogenously or within ourselves, but do we need to get structured water from our external environment as well, or is it sufficient just to drink any type of water and then our body will do the rest? Well, uh, I think it, it's true that the body will do the rest in a healthy healthy person. Um, <clears throat> uh, you need nothing more, and you've got energy coming from uh, sunlight. Uh, sunlight, more than 50% of the energy from the sun is, um, as you well know in Australia, it, it is infrared <laughs> uh, heat, you might say. In, mm. in infrared energy, and that's the energy that is necessary for for building this, uh, this this kind of water. So, so yes, in theory, there's plenty of energy from outside coming in. In addition to that, uh, metabolism is generating heat, and the heat that is generated is essentially not exactly, but essentially equivalent to infrared energy. So, you have in your body, you've got external sources uh, from the sun, and um, and and internal sources from metabolism. And by the way, the external sources is not just directly from the sun. Um, everything around you in your environment is generating infrared energy. And the evidence for that is is um, in, in your room or laboratory or bedroom or whatever, turn off all the lights um, and you see nothing. Your smartphone won't be able to get any image, nor will your retina get any image. But if you whip out a an infrared camera that is a camera whose sensor is is sensitive to infrared you get a beautiful image of everything that's in your room or outside and that's why that's why um it's used in the military uh, in the dark to see you know um uh, the the enemy because you can you can pick up all of that so the energy is there it's from the sun it's from everything in your environment and also from inside your body um, so if you drink the water, um, the energy is coming in. It builds easy water. That should be all you need. However, um, some cells, uh, cells that are uh, dysfunctional or even pathological, um, uh, one of the causes of pathology, and I, I think it could be a major one, is what people refer to as dehydration, and that is not enough water inside the cell or not enough easy water inside the cell and and the evidence for that um, is uh, people fifty years ago uh, um, I was doing this at the beginning of my career poking cells with electrodes to look at the negative electrical potential and a typical healthy cell will be minus seventy or minus eighty millivolts or something like this negative uh, but uh, pathological cells uh, are much much less negative so studies both on cancer cells, uh, those are the ones I can remember, and uh, pathological kidney cells, they both show electrical potentials minus 10 or minus 15 millivolts. And according to what I was trying to relay to you earlier, this electrical potential arises from the water, the negatively charged water. And if you have a potential of minus 10 instead of minus 70, it means there's less easy water inside the cell. And so a possible um, um, origin, if you will, of the pathology is not enough easy water. So you want to restore the easy water. And, of course, the body uh, can do what it can itself to restore it, but you can help. And uh, there are 
uh, multiple ways of uh, of helping. I think I've been uh, simple ways uh, of helping. Um, I, I I made a list, and uh, we um, I think it's published uh, some very simple expedients that a- anybody. Um, could employ to improve their health. And these do improve health. And if you ask me, I can go down the list, but that wasn't your question. Uh, your, uh, your question is, do you, uh, <clears throat> can you produce it endogenously from the raw material of water or must you get it elsewhere? And you can get it elsewhere. Um, uh, I, I, I'll just give you, uh, give you one example of, uh, as I said, you know, yeah, I'd love to uh, hear some examples. Well, okay, Paul, okay. So I, I, I run down the ex- the examples uh, briefly. Now, one of them is drinking water. Obviously, it's the raw material. You need it. The second one is uh, juicing. So, um, um, you know, by juicing, I'm talking about the expedient of going out in your, your uh, garden and um, taking some leaves from some plants, some freshly grown leaves, Um and then mashing them in a, a machine or by hand, squeezing out the juice and drinking the juice. So uh, what are you drinking when you drink the juice? You're drinking the, um, um, the, the water from inside the plant cell, and that's just full of easy water. These are healthy leaves that have just come into being, plenty of sunshine. And, um, and so by drinking this, this water and trying to make it palatable by adding a little <laughs> bit of flavor of some sort, um, uh, you're, you're basically provide, directly providing easy water to your body. And so you can offer this easy water to the cells that need it, and, and the cells will take it up and build easy water, and you, uh, you will feel better. And the evidence for that, I haven't seen published evidence uh, very much, but you know the health providers that I've uh, spoken to a, a fair number. What they report is the patient comes, patient has a problem, and um, and the therapy that they suggest one of the therapies or the major one, and sometimes only that, is to to drink the juice of the plants. And the reports I get are that the people come back, they return after a few months, and whatever was ailing them is not ailing ailing them nearly as much or at all as when they came in and a uh, byproduct is also weight loss. So you've, you've got both. And, you know, all of this is anecdotal, but, but it makes sense to me because, um, because you're drinking easy water and you're replenishing the easy water that's missing in your body. And therefore you're promoting function where before there was dysfunction. So that's, that's number two. Um, number three, uh, number three is herbs. Um, uh, of various sort, natural substances. So, so all of this dates back to um, Ayurvedic times or ancient China when the people were maybe smarter <laughs> and they they knew um, they knew how to how to heal themselves. And in this tradition, um, take the Ayurvedic tradition for example. Uh, what has lingered and what has come out of that tradition is a couple of substances that lead the way. And one of them is turmeric. Um, and another one is basil, holy basil, and um, and so the, those are those are known to have positive effects on health. And beyond that, they're known that uh, it's not just one specific aspect of health, like uh, you know, 
reversing a, a kidney pathology or something. It's all over the body. You know, practically whatever ails you. Take take turmeric. Uh, it it's possible. There are two hypotheses that you can. I think at least two that you could put forth. One is that the turmeric is really special, and it it can impact the receptors of uh, your kidney cells, your heart cells, your your nerve cells, or whatever. Or another hypothesis, instead of having multiple mechanisms, there's one mechanism, and that is it impacts the water, which is all over, which then you know can impact all of those organs. And so, naturally, we thought. Um, uh, the second one is a simpler hypothesis, and based on uh, the principle of Occam's razor, uh, we're drawn towards simplicity. And so we began testing. So we tested um, turmeric. We set up a chamber that had a fourth phase or exclusion zone, and we added turmeric uh, in various concentrations. And we found that the concentration that would be typical uh, inside your body expanded the exclusion zone water. <laughs> You get more just from turmeric. And then we, wow. looked, yeah, we, we published that. And we looked at basil. We found the same thing. Um, we also, uh, in a subsequent paper, we studied ghee. Um, and we not only found the same thing, but um, the exclusion zones grew enormously, uh, maybe more than we'd seen in almost any other circumstance. So, um, so ghee, uh, you know, the, the concept from, I guess dating from Ayurvedic times, uh, ghee is um, is promotes health. Uh, it does, uh, I, I believe, and I think we figured out why it might do it, just like the other substances. So we also studied aspirin, you know, which although produced by pharmaceutical companies, it's um, it's natural. It comes from the bark of the willow tree. We found the same. We even tried Tylenol. I don't know if you have that in Australia, but it's kind of yes. common aspirin substitute. And we found the same. Um, there were one or two more I, I'm uh, having trouble recalling. So anyway, going down the list of simple expedients uh, to improve your health, uh, that's the third one. Um, um, the first was uh, drinking drinking water. The second was drinking easy water. And, and this is the third one. A fourth one is is sunshine. So where you live in Brisbane, I think there's plenty of sunshine. Where I live in Seattle, um, in the wintertime, sunshine is a rare commodity. Uh, there's lots of gray because we're right at the edge of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and occasionally when the sun comes out, everybody feels good. Uh, so why do we feel good? Um, <clears throat> of course, the usual explanation is, is it's a purely psychological effect, which it's not easy to dismiss it. It might be, but there's another uh, that, as I mentioned earlier, that the sun is generating huge amounts of infrared energy, and you're absorbing that infrared energy. So you're absorbing it um, in pretty much all parts of your body. Your face is exposed. Your head uh, might be exposed, and 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 you're absorbing uh, that infrared. And that infrared once again builds easy water. So it's possible uh, that. The reason you feel better is at least in part that in your brain um, uh, you're receiving lots of infrared energy and that infrared energy is building easy water in the cells and the nerve cells and other cells of your brain and that's why you feel better um, the fifth one uh, almost as an extension of that is the sauna um, 
or sauna, depending on what country you come from. And, um, and uh, you know, you, what is the sauna? Well, you, you, it's basically heat. So you walk in, whether it's damp, moist, or dry, it's still heat, uh, it pretty extreme heat. And heat is pretty much equivalent to infrared uh, energy. It's not exactly the same, but, uh, you know, uh, for our purposes, let's call it that. And you're sitting without clothing or without much clothing, um, and you're absorbing this infrared energy from outside. Um, um, uh, and it's building easy water inside your body. So you, you know, you get out, and uh, when you get out, you feel better than when you when you walked in. I had that experience. I don't I don't do this very often, but I was in Finland, and uh, way up pretty far north in Finland, and I was at a conference, and uh, I presented at the conference, and I was still jet lagged. It was a difficult day for me, and then in the evening. Um, they said, we're having a party. So, okay, I go to the party. They load us in the bus, buses and take us to this remote place uh, where we had really good food. And I was just waiting for an announcement that the bus is about to go back to your hotel, uh, load the bus, and we'll take you back home to your hotel so you can go to sleep. So the guy got up to the microphone, and instead of saying that, he said, okay, the sauna is now open. And we have three different kinds, and he was explaining. And I said, oh, shit, that's not what I want. I want to go back to bed and go to sleep. But, uh, you know, everybody was doing it, so I, I joined them, and I went into, I can't remember which one it was, sat there for 20 minutes, had some conversations with the people, took my shower, went back to the party room. And I tell you, I felt like I just had eight hours sleep. I was raring to go. I was ready for the next day. Just 20 minutes in, in that sauna. And I, you know, again, I, I think the explanation could be really simple. It doesn't matter what's ailing you, whether it's a headache or a depression or muscle aches or whatever. You feel better when you come out because, because what this energy does is build easy water inside your body. And the easy water is necessary for good function or proper function. So that's, um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, five of them. Let's see. What was the uh, the sixth one? Uh, uh, failing, failing me. Uh, uh, well, uh, pressure uh, is it's not the one I I was thinking of, but it, it turns out we did experiments, and um, if you if you exert if you exert pressure on uh, on on water, the Ordinary liquid water turns into easy water. And the reason we studied that um, uh, was we were studying hyperbaric. We were considering uh, hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And this kind of therapy, uh, you, you, you may know, um, uh, or you probably do, <laughs> this is a good for wound healing, but it's not just wound healing. Um, uh, the people who are dealing with it have identified something like 30 different syndromes that benefit from hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So again, the, the, the idea is, well, how's it working? Is it, does the high pressure and high oxygen, do they have 30 different receptors inside, inside your body or is there one? And again, you know, we're drawn to simplicity. Is it possible that the high pressure and high oxygen um, are responsible for building easy water? And 
one of my students tackled this problem and we published the result and uh, the evidence was positive. Uh, high pressure, well, by high, I mean just exceeding atmospheric. I don't mean super high pressure. Um, a little bit of pressure uh, does it and a little bit of oxygen does it. And and we, we can understand why that's so because uh, in terms of the pressure, um, the easy water is denser than liquid water. And so if you squeeze the liquid water, it's easy to understand how it would convert to easy water. Um, and uh, it's it's not not only that, but, um, but oxygen, the easy water actually has more oxygen per unit hydrogen than ordinary liquid water. So it's understandable for us why both of those expedients build easy water. And so if you go back to the body, there are, you know, various practitioners, um, who um, who put light pressure on on the body? Uh, I'm thinking of osteopaths, but but there are others, other kinds of uh, healers who who will 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 do this. And a possible explanation as to why it's as effective as it is is by putting your hands there. Um, you're doing a few things. You're first exerting pressure, which builds easy water, and and secondly, the infrared energy from your hands is being absorbed. By the patient and uh, in in the region where where the problem is, and so that can help reverse the problem. So this is this is um, there was another another one uh, that's escaping me at the moment, but um, maybe I'll think of it uh, in in short order. So uh, th- those are you know a few of the r- relatively simple things that uh, anybody could do to promote their their own health. Uh, I They're all amazing, uh, oh, all oh, amazing yeah. things that yeah, you've been you. mentioning here. Yeah, let me just tell you the, the other one that I'd forgotten. Um, this is really important. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't like to interrupt you because I'm blabbering. No, okay, on please. But it's earthing or grounding. So um, I, I'm sure some of your listeners are, are uh, aware of this, but it's, if you take a walk on the beach barefoot, uh, near the water, you do it for twenty thirty minutes, and you feel really good afterward um, and um, and um, that you 're electrically connected to the earth when you 're barefoot or another example of doing this is um, in Japan is very common the mud baths um, high conductivity you immerse yourself in the mud bath um, and you feel better when when you get out it 's also connected. You're connecting yourself to the earth, or if you go walk into the ocean, um, you're again connecting yourself to the earth. And in all of those situations, most people report that they feel good afterward. And so, of course, the question is, well, why do you feel good? So, and I think the reason um, is that the the earth, unlike what what at least we're taught in the U.S. I I studied <coughs> in my undergraduate courses. I studied electrical engineering. And no professor ever would even hint to me that the Earth was anything other than neutral. Um, uh, if you if you plug um, um, if you plug uh, the electrical cord into a receptacle, you're connected. The, the neutral prong, the third prong, is is connecting to something that is is neutral, right? And it shocked me to find out that that was not the case uh, at all. That the Earth is actually negatively charged. It started with a Russian guy who was in my lab, and this Russian guy, just before he's returning, he was in my lab six months, 
And Andre was a, a clever and knowledgeable guy. And we had a discussion just as he was leaving for Russia that very afternoon or evening. And he's talking to me about the Earth's electrical field. And I said, Andre, what are you talking about? Uh, you mean magnetic field, right? He said, no, no, no. I mean, electric field, completely distinct from the magnetic field. He said, don't you know that up in the ionosphere, there's positive charge and the Earth is negatively charged? And between the positive and negative, you have an electric field. And the magnitude is something like 100 volts per meter um, at the Earth's surface, which means if you're standing up, um, and that means you've got a 200, if you're uh, two meters tall or something like that, you've got 200 volts between your nose and your toes. <laughs> so, um, uh, and I, I was, I couldn't believe what Andre was talking about because it didn't make any sense. How is it possible? that I never heard of this, uh, that I studied electrical engineering, that I had deep interest in electricity, but never. So I, I went to bed skeptical. Next morning, one of my students comes in um, and and uh, brings uh, the lectures of the famous uh, Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate, who people consider the Einstein of the second half of the previous century. Uh, and he had given lectures at Caltech and they're put into three volumes. Uh, someone did it, I think, after his death. And practically every physics graduate student um, studies those books uh, uh, here, at least in, in the U.S., because the guy was funny and uh, he could explain things clearly. So he shows it to me, he opens to volume two, chapter nine, and there was um, uh, the whole chapter is on the electric field um, of the earth and the negative charge of the earth itself. So the earth is not neutral, it's negative. When you connect yourself to the earth, uh, you're connecting yourself to a vast reservoir of negative charge. And so what happens? Well, uh, you know, if you have some cells that are not very negative uh, and you connect yourself electrically to this huge re reservoir, the negative charge pours into your body. And as I mentioned earlier, it builds easy water. And so, um, so I think that's what's going on. It's why if you, if you immerse yourself in any of those situations, walking, walking near, the, near the water or uh, immersing yourself in salt water uh, or mud baths or whatever, you're connecting yourself to this reservoir. And um, simple explanation is that the negative charge pours into your body builds easy and you feel better and i think most people do feel better i just i i re remember one incident when i was a kid and i don't remember a whole lot from when i was a kid but but this incident uh, uh really struck me i must have been 10 years old i was with my friends and we were at the beach in brooklyn new york where i grew up and you know in the summertime you have to escape the heat and so people go to the beaches which are not so bad but very crowded and we're playing around on the beach and toward the end of the day, um, hey, let's bury one another. So I volunteered and they dug a big hole and I was buried up to my neck. It was near the water. I was a bit worried about the tide coming in. <laughs> but um, what I remember is I have rarely felt um, as wonderful as I did while buried. And it was getting time to go home. They wanted to um, unbury me and I just didn't want to get unburied because the feeling... You know, um, it almost beats sex. <laughs> it's a wonderful, absolutely wonderful 
wonderful feeling, and 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 I remember it. And so, um, there have been a lot of biophysical studies on trying to explain uh, the positive effects of earthing or grounding yourself. Um, there are various points of view, and the point of view that I uh, I would maintain is a good chance that the positive effect of grounding yourself comes very simply from the electrical negative electrical charge that pours into your body, creates easy water, and promotes good health throughout your body. So that um, that was the sixth one that I had forgotten about, um, and now we have a seventh one, which is pressure and oxygen. So that's amazing. Uh, well, truly me, amazing. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, and it's so easy, you know. But we've the last one we've disconnected ourselves. So we have, uh, we have soles of our shoes that are non-conductors. Um, and by the way, various companies are putting out shoes where there's a plug of metal so that you don't lose the connection to the earth. Um, and uh, another, another example of this, um, uh, you're inspiring me to remember this, is my friend was telling me a story about, that he read about George Washington, you know, our first president. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, um, um, uh, after whom our university is is named, um, and he, uh, when he traveled from place to place, um, accompanying him was his physician, his personal physician. Um, I guess the same thing happens in the White House now, where there basically there's the equivalent of a hospital inside. Um, so if our dear president uh, is ill, uh, he's got some uh, good attention. Uh, so anyway, uh, but George Washington brought his physician. One day, he said to his physician, you know, I'm not feeling very well. And they were somewhere out in the forest. So physician said, just hug the tree. Um, and so this, as the story goes, uh, Washington hugged the tree for a few minutes. And, and after that, he said, I'm feeling fine now. So what the hell's going on? Why would hugging a tree make a difference? Well, the trees are basically full of negative charge. The cells are just like, just like the cells in our body. Um, and in fact, the electrical potential of those cells, um, uh, plant cells in general, instead of being minus 60, minus 70, they're all, often twice that amount, uh, minus 150 millivolts. So you're... You're putting your arms uh, around a whole lot of negative charge, and um, maybe that's the reason you're just imparting negative charge into your body. So our body actually, you know, bodies are not neutral. Our bodies are negative charge, negatively charged. People don't think about that, but you know, we're seventy percent cells, and the cells are all negatively charged. Um, I think because of this easy water, um, and and even extracellular tissues like collagen. And, Lasting and such also bear negative charge. They've also been demonstrated to be surrounded by easy water. So we're we're not neutral uh, by any means. Although you know, politically speaking, we might like to become more neutral, but we're negatively charged. And the more negative charge, at least the concept that I've uh, come to appreciate, the more negative charge we have, uh, the more easy water we have, the healthier we are. Okay. So let me stop that and wait for your next question. No, it's it's really um, so good to hear everything that you're saying because a lot of the things that you've mentioned, those six or seven points, are things that we would 
usually get clients to do or patients to do as a part of their healing therapy. So these are things that we've known for a really long time that they have a beneficial effect, but I guess we've never understood the reason as to just why it works. And and now you're providing evidence as to why these things are happening. It's well, I, really- I think those are the explanations. I you know, um, uh, as it, it it was once said that. Um, you know, even the most beautiful theory can be destroyed by uh, one ugly fact. <laughs> so, um, um, one never knows. Uh, you know, one can advance hypotheses, and uh, they're just hypotheses that seem to fit. But one never knows in the future whether uh, they're going to be proved wrong. Uh, I think not, but this is the direction we're going. Um, so, and by the way, we just started this week. You didn't ask, but um, I seem to be in a a talkative mood where we're actually looking at 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 uh, the role of healers. Now I know this is this sort of thing. A healer on water, uh, bound to be um, uh, more uh, well um, disbelieved or uh, uh, by 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 so many because it seems um, it seems absurd that uh, possibly that water could contain information uh, of, of 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 some sort, but we have a lot of good reason to think that that's the case, which I can tell you about if you ask me. But we're starting experiments with healers, uh, um, putting their attention um, to water. So in the laboratory, we have a, a, a beaker of water. The healer comes in. We just ran the first sham experiment uh, two days ago. Healer comes in, focuses his or her attention on the water in a positive way. And then um, we have five different standard instruments uh, that we can apply to study the water to see if the physical chemical properties of the water have changed as a consequence of uh, of the healer so we're really excited about that because because there's evidence from so many quarters now and no matter you know how strange the concept might seem that it actually works so i i organize each year the annual conference on the physics chemistry and biology of water we had to skip uh, this uh, the, uh, the meeting that would have occurred right right just now, um, October. Um, we're going to do it next spring because of COVID. Um, people obviously can't travel. I can't travel myself right, even. Uh, so running the show is not so easy. And each time, each each time we have a conference each year, two or three p- people will report the results of their experiments on water memory or water information. And I'm not talking about, um, uh, I'm talking about genuine objective scientific experiments. Uh, there's also work by uh, uh, people who are spiritualists, like for example, uh, the late Musara Emoto. And um, <coughs> and most scientists will reject that if, if you don't know about the work. And so he was a spiritualist, uh, passed away five years ago. Um, he would focus his attention on the water and think positive thoughts like, I love you, freeze the water, look at the crystals that formed, and they were beautiful. Um, and then he would focus negative attention on the water, and the crystals uh, were not beautiful. They were really ugly. Uh, and he was, he's been criticized, and I think aptly so, because he would freeze... 50 petri dishes and in one condition and 50 in another and he'd pick out the ones that he thought best illustrated what he wanted to show 
So it's called cherry picking, and a lot of scientists are dubious. However, I'm talking about experiments. Uh, by the way, the, the group uh, that follows in his footsteps have now been uh, beginning to adopt more scientific approaches to this, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out. But I'm talking about um, scientists who, uh, experienced scientists who are now convinced that this is a real thing, including, by the way, uh, Nobel laureate Luc Montagnier, who got his Nobel Prize for discovering HIV. Um, he comes each year and will be coming to the next conference, which will be uh, late April t- 2021. And uh, and his evidence is nothing short of amazing about, about water being able to store information and transmit that information. And so if that's true, and so far the evidence looks promising, if that's true, it means that um, um, information, uh, subtle kinds of information could be transmitted from one person to another, for example. So, you know, you're standing next to a person and you, you feel something. You don't know exactly what it is, but you're getting some some information. And that kind of subtle information, which nobody understands at all, seems to have uh, have an impact on nearby water. Uh, so his uh, controversial experiment is, let me just tell you, because it's so interesting. Um, Please takes, do, yes. Yeah, yeah. So he's got... He's got two containers sitting next to one another, sealed containers. So there's no no chance for any chemicals to uh, be exchanged between one and the other. The first one has DNA, a short strand of DNA, um, sitting in water, actually diluted uh, homeopathically. But uh, basically, it's a short strand of DNA in water with a certain sequence. And sitting next to that is pure water. uh, the the kind of purest water you can imagine in a factory sealed flask. And the two of them are sitting next to each other, and he supplies some kind of extraneous energy, fifty hertz, sixty hertz, something like that, just to power power the system. And he says, "What's going on here is that the information from he hypothesizes the information from the DNA or from the water surrounding the DNA is being transmitted." to the nearby container of water. So how does he test this? He takes that that water uh, that's been informed, so to speak, and um, he uses the PCR system to build new DNA um, based, uh, and the water that he uses, the water that's been informed, you see. So he takes the solids mixed with the water, and voila, you get lots of DNA out, out of it, and the sequence of the DNA matches the sequence uh, of the original that was sitting next to the water. So, I mean, incredible, isn't it? Uh, it's totally incredible. Uh, he, he claims, um, uh, that two Italian groups have, have, uh, uh, attempted to reproduce, uh, his results and they've been successful in doing that. So, um, you know, uh, if, if this is true, uh, I, I think, it would be great if Luke can actually uh, publish details. They've yet to be uh, published. There are sort of sketchy uh, uh, um, descriptions, but if if they're published and they're really confirmed, this is, you know, this is just simply amazing. Um, it's not. It's not just him. I, I bring I bring him up because because you know he won a Nobel Prize, so he has 
some level of credibility because of that. And I give him a lot of credit because he's ventured into into this domain. Um, he knew from his late friend, Jacques Benveniste, who was also espousing water memory and lost his career, basically, um, uh, because he claimed uh, to have evidence that water contains memory. So the bottom line is it looks like it looks like it's real, even though it's hard to imagine. It's a little bit easier for me to imagine because because um, I I I think of of uh, a memory of a computer, uh, and you know the computer consists of uh, silicon atoms that are organized. Uh, uh, in three dimensions, and each each atom, in one way or another, can have one of two states. We say zero or one, but on, off, or whatever. And when you have a, a th- organized three dimensional array of that, with each atom uh, occupying one of those two states, you have memory. Okay, it's the same thing that happens in in your thumb drive. That that's how it works. Now, if you think about the easy water, which I just told you told you about its structure, the sheet, each sheet uh, is full of uh, oxygens and hydrogens around, arranged in a honeycomb fashion. Uh, the question is, uh, could the hydrogen or the oxygen occupy two different states? You've got the order, which is the same as in the thumb drive, but do we have the two different, possibly two different states? Well, as far as I know, the hydrogen um, doesn't satisfy that, but the oxygen um, has actually not two oxidation states, but five. Uh, you can find this in any chemistry textbook. It's it's common knowledge in in chemistry. It's not nothing radical or so. So if you think about about the easy water uh, with each oxygen in that hexagonal, that three-dimensional hexagonal array, having the capacity to occupy any or each of five different states, um, the capacity for information storage, it turns out we calculated some time ago, it's more than a billion times the information density that now exists. Um, Of course, nobody yet understands how the information gets in, how you can get it out, and this remains for the future. But, but I think um, I think this is is the possible substrate, the easy water for the storage of information. And now we can take the easy water uh, and we can make a solid out of it at room temperature. Imagine a kind of water that's a solid at room temperature, just like ice, but room temperature. Um, it it was done. Um, by an Italian group led by uh, Vittorio Elia, who's published a few papers on that. And we got so interested that we, we've begun doing it ourselves and we could confirm that it works. So you have the possibility of, of having a, a solid uh, kind of water that has the capacity for information storage. And who knows if in some years from now, your laptop computer um, will have uh, water of some kind in in, in uh, solid water as the substrate for memory. So that excites me too. It excites <laughs> me as well. Just uh, everything that you've been speaking about um, is just blowing my mind, Dr. Pollock. Um, well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. You've given so much amazing, groundbreaking, thought-provoking information 
um, over the nearly, nearly the last hour and a half. And I can't wait to go back through this podcast and listen to everything that you've said again and dig a little bit deeper into these uh, different aspects of uh, easy water and structured well, water. Th- thank you for your kind comments. And I, I think I, I've gone through pretty quickly and I, I do understand that sometimes uh, when the speaker thinks that's perfectly clear, it's not necessarily perfectly clear. And many of the things I'm talking about are in that uh, book called The Fourth Phase of Water. Um, and um, it's become a really popular book. So I, I do recommend it. Um, it's it's a book that's designed for non-experts um, and, and it's got cartoons in it and a bit of bit of humor, but it's a serious book that tries to describe uh, the things I've been talking about plus more, a lot more. So, yeah, it's been my pleasure. Um, yeah, you're, you're a great interviewer. Oh, no, look, I've just got a, I've got a great guest on. I think that's, that's um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's all really resonating with me, the information that you're providing. And Dr. Pollock, I'm so grateful for you to actually take the time to come on and and speak with me about this topic. It's one that I'm really interested in. And I know that many uh, clinicians and colleagues of mine and listeners of this podcast are also very interested. And um, what I would like to do is uh, in the show notes, if you don't mind, is actually put up some links to your work and research and your books. uh, And maybe even also your um, laboratory, which is polliclab.org is that correct i think it is uh but if you email me i can send you uh the uh, be sure that it's correct i i i think that will get you there but there's a, a more precise link um uh, i think so if you, okay. if you if you just email me i i'll get back to you on that fantastic sure. no I'll, i'm more than happy to share uh your books and links to your research uh, and your website with our listeners. Thank you. Dr. I, Pollock, I, I, yeah, I'm just so grateful that uh, you've, you've taken the time. I understand you're very busy and you've got a lot of researchers uh, and students underneath you um, who obviously require a lot of your time as well. So yeah, uh, it means a lot to me that you've, you've given up that time to um, come and help spread the word about structured water. Thank you. Well, I was very happy to do it because, um, yeah, for me, it's so exciting. Um, So thank you very much, uh, Daniel. Okay, and we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. And uh, Dr. Pollock, just in the time that we've spent together, I've got about six pages of notes and questions here. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So um, if, if... in the future, you uh, have time again. I would actually love to get you back on and see if we can answer some more of these other questions Absolutely. that I've now got on my mind. I'm de- delighted. Okay. And I love to visit down under, uh, but hasn't been possible <laughs> lately. Uh, it's one of my favorite places. Well, hopefully so- things change soon and you can make your way to Australia. And I'd, I'd love to catch up with you uh, if you do Absolutely. come down here. Okay. All right. Anyway, take care and we'll be seeing you. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Jared Pollack. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, head on over to humanly.com slash podcast and join the discussion. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and become part of our growing community of like-minded health professionals. Until next time.